Over the years, Mel Gibson has played a few iconic roles that have connected with the American psyche. In Braveheart, he plays William Wallace. He's a Scottish rebel who leads an uprising against the British king, Edward Longshanks. Edward wants to take the, the crown of Scotland. But when Wallace was a young boy, he had lost his father and brother in their attempts to keep Scotland free from Britain. So now he just wants to be left alone on his homestead. The threat, however, arrives on his quiet farm, and he reluctantly is drawn into this battle and eventually leads Scotland to freedom from the tyranny of Britain. In The Patriot, he plays Benjamin Martin, a retired war hero who wants nothing but to be left alone on his, uh, peacefully on his South Carolina plantation in 1776. But the war literally comes to Benjamin's doorsteps in the form of a brutal uh, British colonel who burns the Martin plant plantation to the ground. Benjamin reluctantly steps into battle and to protect the freedom and livelihood of his family and eventually becomes part of the birth of the nation of America. Americans love freedom. You could say that for Americans, freedom is beloved. And it's a very particular view of freedom that has informed the story of America's founding. In both of these roles that Mel Gibson has played, there is an assumed idea of what freedom is. We want to be free to be left alone. But if someone comes, you know, threatening our livelihood, then we are compelled to fight for freedom. Anyone who gets in the way is, of our freedom is evil or is the enemy. It's a freedom from constraint, a freedom from tyranny, a freedom from restrictions to do as you wish, as long as you don't harm anyone. Our culture is often telling us what we want freedom from. But a more crucial question might be, what is freedom for? Scripture paints a different understanding of freedom that flows from knowing that we are God's beloved. Because of God's love for us, we understand freedom primarily not as something that we need to be, uh, something to be free from, but something that we are free for. And in 1 John chapter 2, we get an idea, a glimpse of the kind of freedom that God's beloved children get to enjoy. It's a freedom for obedience, a freedom for truth, a freedom for flourishing desires, and a freedom for healthy development and maturity. And while this chapter addresses topics, as you may have heard as Roz read the passage, it talks about sins and walking in light and darkness and lies and obedience. I want you to recall that John is addressing, he uses my little children five times alone in this chapter. And in verse 7, he, he uses the term beloved in the new uh, NRSV version. He's not writing with this finger-wagging, condescending tone. But instead, it's, a, it's tender parental love, inviting his hearers to an intimate freedom that he has come to know and enjoy for himself. Remember, this is the same John who wrote in his gospel, referring to himself as the one whom Jesus loved. It's written with this posture of, don't you see? Don't you see my beloved children? 
Don't you see the kind of flourishing life that we get to enjoy when we come to know this resurrected Jesus who loves us? That's the tone I hope that you can hear these words from. In verses 3 to 5, John flips the typical script that people have about obedience to God. You know, our culture, and even in many churches, we would have you believe that if you obey God, then God will bless you. Then God will love you. It's essentially a Christianized form of, form of karma. You obey, you get blessed. You love, you get loved. Don't obey, you don't get blessed. But here's the problem. Most of us don't like to obey anyone else except ourselves unless we are absolute, uh, absolutely compelled to, right? Or am I the only one who thinks like that? We only want to obey our desires. So we spend all of our energy trying to figure out what parts of God's word apply to us or that we have to obey. Or, in, and if we don't like what it says, then we say, well, that doesn't really apply to me in my situation. Or we just say, well, we just get rid of this God of Scripture so we don't have to confront it. I don't like what God has to say about this, so I'm just going to play God for myself. But here, John frames obedience to God very differently from what we might imagine. Verses 3 to 5, he doesn't say, if you obey God, then God loves you. Rather, it's if you know that God loves you, then you will obey God. He puts it, if you obey God, then you can be sure that you know God and that God's love has been made complete in you. God's love being made complete in you is a description of this full experience of God's love. When that happens, obedience is just comes out. That's a very different posture towards obedience. It's an obedience that's informed by tenderness and kindness and love. To put it another way, we don't relate to God like obedience machines. Okay, there's this obedience machine. We insert, input our obedience, and the output on the other side is God loves me. You know what that is? That's religion. You do something to earn God's favor, and, and humans are instinctively religion machines. We like to use this religion machine. But when we experience God's love for us, obedience is simply an act of God's Worship, a worshipful response to God. Instead of this obedience machine, we realize God has poured out God's favor and love upon us. That's the input. And our output is simply obedience among many worthy things. So when we really, when we really experience God's love for us, obedience is this worshipful response to God's love. We are set free from religion and this binding uh, interaction of if I do this then God will bless me and if I don't do this then God won't bless me that's the freedom we get to enjoy when we know God's love for us and there's a flip side to freedom from religion and from our own self-reliance and when we find this freedom for God for obedience to God if we find ourselves struggling to trust and obey God in a part of our lives perhaps there's an it's a sign that we quite haven't understood and experienced God's love and goodness for us in that area of life. This leads us to a second freedom found in the latter verses of this chapter that Rosden 
read for us, but we'll draw from it. In last week's opening message on this series, I mentioned that John was addressing the problem of Gnosticism in this letter. Gnostics believed that, one, God was too disconnected and too mysterious for us to really fully know. And two, that the material world, including our bodies, uh, were something to escape from to a truer, more spiritual reality. And third, your salvation was having this kind of knowledge revealed to you specially, rather than simply trusting that Jesus is God. This was the deception that was creeping into the early church, and it perhaps still continues to creep into our spirituality even today, and though we might not label it Gnosticism. Now, verses 21 to 27 explores these themes of truth and lies to speak to John's context of Gnosticism. You see, some teachers were teaching, uh, were denying that Jesus was the Christ and that thereby they were denying God the Father. And that still happens today. We have some teachers or in today's parlance, thought leaders and pioneers that raise questions about whether Jesus really is God and whether Jesus really died on the cross and rose from the grave. And often it comes across as this humble, intellectually curious posture. Well, you know, we can't really know for sure. And many of the things that Jesus did and said were, were culturally conditioned that we don't have access to. So we should just look at Jesus' example of kindness and love and compassion and focus on that as the priority. And whether or not Jesus died and rose from the grave, that's kind of up to interpretation. And if it turns out to be true, then great. You know, that's, this kind of thought is neither thought-leading nor pioneering. It's just Gnosticism version 2.0, or by now, maybe version 4,536. 4, John calls people who deny Christ and deny God the Father as antichrists. Now, this antichrist vocabulary is not as dramatic or insidious as it might seem. Because at its root, the spirit of antichrist is a doubt of God's goodness and a denial of God. And it's this all too human inclination to do so. Just like our first parents, Adam and Eve. What they did in the garden, you know, at the time, they didn't have a Christ to be antichrist. But they did believe in this lie of the serpent that God's prohibition to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil was something to be suspicious of rather than something, an expression of God's love for them. And you see, the best lies aren't always overt and fantastic. The best lies simply take a truth and put a different spin on it. And it begins with this posture of, well, surely a good and loving God wouldn't really ask this of you, would, would God? Did God really say that? And pretty soon we find ourselves believing the promise of the lie. But when we experience God's love for us, demonstrated in Christ, we begin from a place of belovedness. The cross and the resurrection are the anchor points for experiencing God's love. And though it can be an incredible thing to believe, 
It's nothing mysterious or esoteric about death and life and resurrection. There's nothing more concrete or tangible uh, than death and life. It's not secret knowledge to discover. It's simply a fact that we receive and we're invited to receive and as an act of God's love for all of humanity. And when we accept this particular truth, we come to experience God's goodness and love and abundant life now, not just in the future. Experiencing God's belovedness in Christ sets us free from the lie that God's not really that good or that God doesn't really love us and sets us free for the truth of enjoying God's love. It's from this place of belovedness that God, in God that we find freedom to explore a universally human experience, which is our desires. You know, every human has desires. We want things, right? We want to enjoy this extra large McDonald's fries without guilt. We want this house that's for sale on the block. We want this car. We want that job title. We want that attractive man or that attractive woman. We want attention. We want to be seen. We want comfort. We want to satisfy all of our appetites. And most of our energy is spent managing and conf- all these conflicting and unfulfilled desires in our lives, right? That's what we spend most of our time doing. In verses 15 to 17, John addresses desires. First, John doesn't, I want you to know, John doesn't condemn desires. For his hearers who might be influenced by the Gnostic value of denying the goodness of this material world, this was a different way of relating to our embodied humanity. See, popular at the time was the idea that our physical bodies and our desires are what we're meant to escape from in order to experience true salvation. This was a suspicion towards our bodily desires that shows up in other world religions too, like Buddhism. Desire is bad in this view because it leads us to do unhealthy and unhelpful things. And it's crept into even Christian expressions of uh, spirituality over the years. But suspicion towards desire is not what John is saying here. He is saying that we have loves, we have unfulfilled desires, but they are competing desires that are driven either by love for the world or love for the Father. And here, loving the world is a warning against devotion to a world system that is opposed to God, that doesn't want to trust God's goodness. It's not a hatred of this created world and all that's wrong in the world. Rather, John is specifying examples in what happens when we misplace our desires because of our pride. The world and its desires will pass away, but the the desires that are uh, driven by a love for God will go on forever. There are some desires, what John is saying, there are some desires that are short-lived and offer temporary fulfillment. And there are some desires that lead to flourishing and eternal satisfaction. In our job, our task as beloved children of God is to listen for this kind and yet holy voice of our heavenly parent. And when we know God loves us, 
we can confront our desires, we can face them and name them with truth and with humility, but also with confidence. We are given the freedom to engage in our desires that lead us to reflect the beauty and the goodness and the holiness of the living God of Scripture. And we are also given the freedom to turn from desires that are motivated by unhealthy appetites, what John calls lust of the flesh. We are given freedom to turn from desires that are of envy, what he calls lust of the eyes, and turn from desires that say that I can do this on my own, self-reliance, what he calls the pride of life. One of our uh, elders, Kurt Thompson, you know, has recently released this book. He just had a book release party the other, over these past few weeks. And in this book, he explores how our desires are an expression of our longing for beauty. Our desires are pointing to an unfulfilled love for God. And as a practicing psychiatrist and as a Jesus follower, he believes that beholding God's beauty is how we find a way through all of our traumas and our shame. I highly recommend you pick up a book for yourself, a copy, and share one with others as well. You know, our freedom from self-reliance and for obedience, our freedom from deception and for truth, our freedom from unhealthy, short-lived desires and for healthy, flourishing desires, all of these are meant to lead us into this freedom of, from immaturity and for healthy maturity and development. And this is one of the reasons why John writes this letter. In verses 12 to 14, he, t- he addresses children and fathers and young men. I'm writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. And in verse 14, he repeats that pattern again. You know, our time on earth is this journey towards maturity. Hopefully, that's what we're hoping to do as he highlights the stages of human development in these verses. He addresses children and fathers and young men, or maybe in more gender-inclusive language, children and parents and adolescents. The Apostle John here articulates developmental psychology thousands of years before it ever was defined. He uses age-appropriate pedagogy and articulates attachment theory before anyone with a PhD ever did. Now, it would be a mistake to presume that these stages of human maturity that John is speaking about are only addressing our biological or our sociological, social development. He's not just speaking to children and those who are parents. He's addressing a holistic developmental maturity informed by what it means to be God's beloved. You know, Julie likes to poke fun at my inclination to DIY everything. She made fun of me the other day in front of some guests. So I was at a noodle shop in Gaithersburg watching the noodle master do his craft of hand-pulling noodles, and I was like, I could do that. Let's watch some YouTube. I got this. Well, and then last year, Julia got a cappuccino machine for her birthday, and I was watching, you know, latte art. I can do this. Let's watch some YouTube. I got this. How hard can that be? Well, it's been a year, and I still can't do latte art or pulled noodles. You know, clearly, I've lived almost five decades 
I'm a parent of a teenager and a college student, but I'm still quite adolescent when it comes to being told I can't do that. You know, this holistic development, developmental maturity, is something that we are all invited to as we walk with God. At any time, though many of us may be full-grown adults, we can simultaneously be children and adolescents or wise parents, depending on which part of our lives that we are looking at. You know, some of us are stunted as children because of our ignorance or because of trauma, past trauma. We need the assurance uh, that our mistakes or the mistakes that have been done against us, those don't define us and who we are. So that's why John writes, Dear children, your sins are forgiven. You know the Heavenly Father. You are God's beloved. And isn't that what children just need to know? That it's safe? That they're loved? That their mistakes don't define them? And then two, some of us are stuck as adolescents in parts of our lives. And just like all teenagers, you know, our bodies, go, our bodies and our brains and our hormones, they're all developing at different rates. And so we do crazy things. We think we, we have this newfound strength and we have this newfound knowledge and we think we're strong and smart enough to accomplish things independently. But we're also not quite strong enough and smart enough to do things independently without getting into trouble. And so we need wise guides who are on for us to walk alongside with us, to give us wisdom and counsel, to walk in that newfound strength. And some of us are like wise parents in other parts of our lives. We have this gift of time where we can look back and say, yeah, I knew God. God really showed up in my life, in this part of my life. And God will show up in your, your life too. And that's what you have to offer to others in the family of God. We all are children and adolescents and wise parents at different parts of our lives. None of us have it all together, and we need one another to move towards this freedom for healthy maturity and development. You know, I started off this message today talking about Mel Gibson and his roles that he's played, you know, advocating for a kind of freedom. But there's another movie that he was involved with, and he didn't act in it. He simply directed it. And this movie is about another hero who comes to offer true freedom. The movie was The Passion of the Christ, and the hero is none other than Jesus, the Christ. But Jesus wasn't just a movie character. He lived, he breathed, he walked, he taught, he ate, he died, and he resurrected, and he's ascended to be with the Father, and he's coming back to bring freedom to all of us, to all of creation, that what we're longing for. Jesus is the one that demonstrates that we are God's beloved. Jesus graciously gifts those who would respond to him true freedom. Freedom from rebellion and self-reliance and freedom for obedience to God. Freedom from deception and freedom for truth. Freedom from short-lived and unsatisfying desires to freedom for flourishing and eternal desires. Freedom from stunted development in parts of our lives to freedom for healthy maturity in Christ. My friends, may you know and experience this freedom as you come to know that you are God's beloved in Christ. Amen.